So uh, that being said, we're going to begin uh, the sermon today, and we've been marching through with Jesus um, as he's making this journey, and he's going to be uh, around the Sea of Galilee, and then over a three to five day period, he and his followers, they, they take this long kind of meandering walk through enemy territory, through hostile territory known as Samaria, into his final place uh, of his crucifixion in Jerusalem. And so this is sort of the last uh, bits of the life of Christ. And as he walks through hostile territory, he's teaching lessons, he's giving instruction, he's sort of, I think of it, as he's giving us the final class. Like this is the graduate level, guys, you've been with me for three years, now here's the stuff that's really important and don't forget to live this out. And so we're just walking with him over uh, many weeks and just seeing what he's getting into and then talking about how it applies to us. So we're going to continue to do that today in Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to start reading in verse 13. Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Short time after that, this is kind of one pericope, and then this other thought begins. He had sent the disciples out, and so then verse 17 says, the 72 returned with joy. So they had been sent out. They returned to him with joy, and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, Jesus says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so we pick up the story in Samaria, in this land of enemies and hostility. Jews and Samaritans were kind of traditionally uh, at odds with each other. And so we're kind of living, if we go back to the time, we're living in this world of good guys and bad guys. That the, the Jews, these uh, young Jewish men who were following Jesus, their rabbi, they would have seen the people of Samaria, the Samaritans, as kind of the bad guys. They're coming from these good Jewish towns. They're ministering in these bad Samaritan places. And so Jesus has just said that people who reject you in the previous passage When they reject you, shake the dust from your sandals. You don't even want to be associated with the dust of their town. Woe to them. And he continues on, and instead of naming Samaritan towns, Jesus starts naming good Jewish towns. Places around the Sea of Galilee. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Capernaum. He starts naming what we would think of as like the evangelical triangle of, like, these are the places where the good guys live. Why are you saying woe to them? It's kind of startling. It has to be startling for his disciples, these followers, to be like, we just left the like holy land, the place where good stuff's being done, and now we're in enemy territory, and you're saying like you're giving warnings back to the good guys? This was the place where Jesus had spent his life and done all of his ministry. Capernaum is widely believed to be the hometown, like the place where Jesus lived and did most of his work. And as he's making his way away from that region and towards Jerusalem, He says, woe to you, danger, you guys, warning. It's hard for us to imagine what that feels like. So it's as if Jesus walks in to BG, and he doesn't just 
walk around and get onto the, the college party house over on the other side of the railroad tracks. He's not yelling at the atheists and the secularists. He stands at the corner of Wooster in Maine, and he says, Woe to you, Dayspring Church. Woe to you, Brookside. Woe to you, H2O Church. Woe to you, Covenant Church. And we go, whoa, we're the good guys. We're the ones doing the stuff. We're the ones working for you already. What are you talking about? It would raise our eyebrows the same way it must raise the disciples' eyebrows to hear their hometowns mentioned as the places of warning when they're going through the places where the bad guys live. What's he saying and what can we learn? I think the woes that he gives us should clue us into three things. So let's walk through them. First, woe number one, hostility to King Jesus comes from within. Hostility to King Jesus comes from within. Jesus once said rejection will come from his hometown. But the hostility of of Samaritans as they go through this land of, of hostility, the hostility of the Samaritans isn't novel. It's not unique. It's It's about to be normal is what he's telling them. We talked about this a little bit last week. You're preaching the kingdom of heaven. You're preaching about toppling other lords and Jesus being the only Lord. What Jesus is telling his followers is it's not going to go very well for you at times. You're going to get pushed back. You're going to get rejected. The kingdom doesn't just oppose the gods of our enemies. It opposes the secret gods of our brothers and sisters. It opposes the idols that are kept in quiet corners of faithful houses. We've seen this as, as people attempt to go with Jesus on this journey. They're holding something back. Permit me to bury my father, one says, and Jesus said, ah, it's not for you. Another one says, let me just take care of the, the things I need to take care of. Let me just go back and sort out my business. And he goes, no, now or never see you. And Jesus keeps holding this high line of like, guys, you don't understand. It has to be that I am the king and the Lord. And if it's anything less, then you're You're off. Narrow the way and few those who find it. There there seems to be a hostility that comes from within. Scripture speaks of the heart as as an idol factory of sorts. We create new things to worship and new gods to, to follow out of ourselves. Most people don't reject Jesus because demons drag them away. Most people that reject Jesus do so because they're busy worshiping lesser things. So whatever that is in this season, it's good for it to remind us that hostility to King Jesus, to Jesus being Lord and King in my life, the hostility usually doesn't start from outside and enemies. It starts from inside and the idol factory that I am. Woe number two, preconceived notions of good people and bad people blind you to what really matters. He's walking with his disciples and they're going through the, the land of the bad guys. It's the cowboys and Indians. It's good guys and bad guys. It's an easy way to generalize people. In that time, good people were born Jewish. And the bad people were born anything else. It was about where you were born. It was about the religion you were born into. I was a good Jew. I was circumcised at eight days old. I I did all the right things. I checked all the right boxes. What do you mean, Jesus? A lot of us have been raised in, in that same sort of religious experience where you may have been baptized As an infant, you may have had the right boxes checked for you. As a child, you may have been raised in the right faith or in the right home that believed the right things or in the right religion. And Jesus is kind of undoing that, saying it's not about what religion you were born into, it's whether you've been born again, which is a total rethinking of the entire way that that faith and religion had worked leading up to that point. It's not about the religion you're born into, it's whether you've been born again. 
So Jesus is telling his followers to expect just as much rejection from the good Jews they grew up with as those nasty Samaritans they're dealing with now. And what he's doing is he's removing lines. He's removing tribal lines and political lines and familial lines and racial lines. I'm the right race. Isn't that good enough? No. I came from the right family. Is that good enough? No. I'm with the right political party. Is that good enough? No. What is it then? When you, when you remove lines from anything, it changes the rules of, of the game you're playing. Growing up, we would play wiffle ball. We lived on a cul-de-sac. Wiffle ball is a, it's like baseball, but it's a plastic ball with holes all in it, so it kind of swerves around differently, and it's a, it goes a little slower. It's a little bit more fun, and when you get hit in the face with it, it's not quite as painful as a real baseball. We would play wiffle ball in the cul-de-sac, and all the kids from the neighborhood would come together, and the thing is, it looks like baseball, until you get rid of all the lines. Like, we didn't have a lined field. We didn't have a fence with a yellow a band at the top of it to say what's a home run and what's not. It was like, if it went into Miss Stolhansky's yard, that counts. But if it, if it went into Miss Jewett's yard, that's a foul ball. And you're like, who's going to say? Because it's all just grass. And so then you fight about it, and there's no lines, and kids are arguing. And so we, we would actually then make the game more complicated. So people who were driving through wondering what we're doing, we would tape the, the wiffle ball with duct tape to make it a little heavier so it, it went a little faster and flew a little further when you hit it. And then, because I grew up in South Texas, um, we would use the Mexican bat. Now, the Mexican bat is a thing of great lore. If you ever come across this bat, it's like, like in the natural where you just hold it and it's got this power. And the Mexican bat was actually just a pinata bat that was bought at the market downtown because who doesn't have a pinata bat at their house? And all it was is this um, baseball bat-sized um, bat that had Mexican carvings in it and it was colored the color of the Mexican flag and it was, it was the Mexican bat. And so our pinata bat in our house was only brought out at special occasions, but you hit a duct-taped wiffle ball with a pinata bat into Miss Delhansky's yard, and what does that count for? And the only people who knew the rules were those of us who were making them up as we went. Why? Because there were no rules. Because all the things that we had been trained to, to learn about baseball, and foul, fair ball, foul ball, second base, where's second base? Well, I moved it. Okay. And, and it became this like ongoing, evolving, new thing. And anybody who came who was like, if your friend was over for the day and you said, hey, come, come, come play wiffle ball with us, they wouldn't know what to do because they think it's baseball until they realize there were no lines. And then they're struggling to figure out the rules of the game because they'd all been made new in what we'd done. What Jesus is doing here is he's removing all of the lines of the religious game that people have been playing for years. And so as the religious come to play, they're going, wait, this isn't the way I was told it was going to be. And Jesus goes, Exactly. People are not in the kingdom because they're in the right religion. They enter the kingdom because they've been born again with Jesus as their king. So Jesus is saying, woe to you, anyone who makes something other than Jesus your primary affection. Woe to you, any town that thinks that just because you're on the right side of the border or the right color of the... It, Woe to you if you think that that has anything to do with being part of the kingdom. Third woe. When your focus is on changing the minds of your enemies, you can't change the hearts of people made in God's image. I would say it another way. I'd say when your focus is on changing the minds of created enemies, you can't change the heart of people created in God's image. We are in a, a really interesting season in our world where everything is divisive. Mask, no mask. 
red, blue, left, right. School, hybrid school, virtual school, no school. Everything that comes up, organic food. I heard somebody at the farmer's market saying, uh, you don't really want organic because they actually use this and you want to use this pesticide because it's actually safer to use this one instead of that one. So there's like an organic and a semi-organic and a non-organic and they have their own fight. And they're all trying to convince each other and they're all on everybody else's Facebook page and there's wars going on that we can't see in the organic food culture. It's all out there. Everything's a fight. And what we do is we attempt to spend our life then creating uh, arguments that will help convince other people and change their minds that we're right. And the reason we do this, let me be very honest, because I do it too, we do this because we're insecure. I've spent my time trying to argue someone to change their mind so that I can feel better about my own life and decision, 100%. Because I'm insecure in who I am or what I'm doing, I need you to believe what I believe or you to vote how I vote or you to eat the type of peaches I eat because that shows me that I may be doing something right and that gives me a little bit more confidence in life, but it's just rooted in insecurity. What we need to do instead of seeing uh, arguments out there that we need to engage in, we need to see that there are people out there that are created in the image of God. And so instead of creating enemies that we can argue with, we have to create neighbors. We have to find those around us and see that God has his holy thumbprint upon them, that Scripture says that he has breathed them into existence for a purpose, that they bear his image, that they're a reflection of the Creator, and when we start doing that, it changes the way we interact with others. And instead of trying to argue them onto our side of the political map or onto our side of this, this contentious issue, what we do instead is engage them at a heart level, realizing that there's a holiness to be unearthed in them. See, when we categorize people, it's easier to write them off. Those people. You ready for an unpopular opinion? When we uh, categorize people and write them off, what we've essentially done is chosen to play God for the day. Oh, well, I don't talk to that neighbor because of the yard sign he has for the other political party, or I don't talk to those people because they're from the wrong tribe, race, party, school opinion, mask debate, whatever. And what we do when we choose to categorize people instead of seeing them as individuals created in God's image is we, we write them off. We play God. And the reality is we were put here to be ambassadors of Christ and we were put here to reach others with the gospel good news of Jesus Christ, with the incredible good news that he came to live a perfect life, to die upon the cross, to rise so that you and I would experience true flourishing in eternity. And so guess who needs Jesus? Political radicals on the left and the right. Guess who needs Jesus? Racists and anti-racists. People aiming for white power and black people both need Jesus. Thieves and thugs, the judge and the jailer all need Jesus. Poor and powerless, the rich and well-connected need Jesus. Democrats need Jesus. Republicans need Jesus. Pro-life, pro-choice, pro-gun, anti-gun. People need Jesus. And it's our job as ambassadors of Christ to bring them Jesus, to display Jesus with our lives, to display Jesus with our words. It is our job. And when we find ourselves arguing the point to convince and change their minds, it probably means that we've lost the idea that we're there to impact their hearts. You can read through your Bible and you will never find a passage where Jesus instructs people to go and change other people's minds. We're not called to change the minds of those with whom we disagree. We are called to introduce Jesus to others so that he might do the work of changing their hearts. And guess what happens when Jesus does the inside-out transformational work of the heart? 
begins to travel to the mind. When Paul, the great terrorizer of the Christ follower, experienced Jesus, the scales fell off eventually, and he began to see as what was true. And so his mindset changed because he had a heart transformation. And he became one of the most read philosophers in the history of the world. He wrote half of your New Testament. He leads the church even today through his teaching. And he was one who would terrorize the Christ follower until he had a heart transformation. Jesus didn't come to, t- uh, to lead us from wrong thinking to right thinking, but from death to life. It doesn't mean to not fight for a good cause. It doesn't mean don't uh, make your voice heard. It doesn't mean don't bring justice where it's needed. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. I'm not saying not to do those things. I'm saying focus on the heart of the person. Focus on the heart of the individual across the street from you in the apartment next door, in the classroom, in the cubicle. Focus on the heart and not the mindset. How do we do this? How do we find it in us to do this? Because this doesn't seem natural. We do this when we are anchored in joy. In verse 20, which you'll see at the bottom half of this screen, this is from the message, slightly different translation than what we've read, but, but Jesus says, all the same, all the same, the great triumph is not in your authority over evil, guys. He's speaking to his followers. It's not about your authority over evil. It's in God's authority over you, his presence with you. It's not what you do for God, but what God does for you. That's the agenda for rejoicing. I mean, you woke up this morning going, what is my agenda for rejoicing? I know you did. You said, I need an agenda for rejoicing. No one's asked for that. What is an agenda for rejoicing? It's what is the thing that I put on my calendar? What's the thing at the top of my priority list? What's the thing at the top of my grocery list? Jesus calls me his own. Jesus gave his life for me. Jesus gave up everything so that I might be called his. Jesus enters me into the kingdom through his valor and his glory. He earned it. That goes at the top of my agenda for the day, Jesus. And then everything else under that falls under that heading. And so what is your agenda for rejoicing? Jesus is saying great works are great. It's worth celebrating, but victory isn't in your great works. Victory is in King Jesus alone. That all of the fruit that happens along the way, all of the hearts that are transformed, even those things, those things are just an outflow of what's happening at the root. The fruit is simply an outflow of the the root, and the root has to be that we are sons and daughters of the King of creation. That you and I would rejoice in the day's beginning because our names are written in heaven because Jesus has called us his own, so we rejoice in that, and that God's not not doing things through us because he needs us. He's doing things through us because he loves us and he wants us to see his glory on display. Friends, it is not about what you do. It is about who you are. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. It is not about what you do. It's about who you are. And so getting on the work of Jesus is exhilarating and incredible and life-giving. And even that can be its own trap because we get so busy working for Jesus, that we lose Jesus in the midst of it. And so the the person who comes to faith ends up in religion somehow, and they go, how did I even get to this place where I'm back checking boxes? Got there because we lost Jesus while we were busy working for him. So be careful not to lose Jesus in the work of Jesus. In a hostile land, victory is rare. We started the journey 
couple weeks ago and we saw the first three people who chose to follow Jesus fell away pretty quickly. Because when we forget who we are and whose we are, and we begin to focus on what we do or other priorities, when we have something else at the top of that agenda, we lose sight of who we really are. And all we're left with is good people, the good guys doing good deeds. And Jesus says, whoa. Do you parent like that? About what you do instead of who you are? Do you grandparent like that? Do you cheer for what they do instead of who they are? Do you manage employees like that? Do you talk to classmates like that? Is it about when you see another person, do you see them for who they are or for what they do? Does the way you lead and love highlight the identity of others or the deeds of others? When I was living in South Africa, my pastor, Pastor Willie and I, he said, we need to go to Kenya for a week. We have to go set up for a mission team coming from America. And setup work was, was pretty thankless work. You, you do all the hard work of meeting everybody and setting up a school and making sure they're willing to receive 10 sort of bumbling Americans that don't know left from right and come in and, and do their thing. And it was, so we'd go to school and then you'd go to this church and then you'd go to this school and then you'd talk to these people and you'd go to that village and, and all you're doing for the week is sort of paving the way. A little bit like being sent into Samaria by Jesus going, hey, go see if they're willing to accept us. And along the way, we were doing all these things and meeting with the elder of this village and the principal of that school. And, and Pastor Willie said, we need to go check on Mike Eden. And I said, okay, who's Mike Eden? And he goes, he's this, uh, well, you just have to meet him. But, but he's working on an orphanage. God told him to build an orphanage, so he's building an orphanage. Oh, okay. So we pull up in this three-hour drive from the middle of nowhere. So there's the middle of nowhere, and then Mike Eden was working in, like, the outer limits of nowhere. The uttermost places, I think, is what Jesus called it. And so we, we go from the middle of nowhere further away, and we find Mike Eden by himself working on an orphanage. Big white pickup truck, cowboy hat, one of those snappy cowboy shirts with all the buttons that snap, big old cowboy boots, smile the size of his hat. And Mike Eden's a 65-year-old cowboy from Texas, a rancher, who got radically saved and God told him to go and build an orphanage. So we went. And he was so excited to see people because he's doing this mostly by himself. He hires some local help at times, but he's building an orphanage. His wife is back in Houston. She had some medical issues, couldn't come over. So he's alone, 10,000 miles from home, doing God's work. And we said, Mike, show us around. And you would have thought he was introducing us to his, his children as he walked us through half-built rooms of stone and mud and this is where they're going to do the washing. And this is where they're going to have the babies. And, and he took us through the whole thing. Exuberant. About an hour into our visit with Mike Eden, he just sort of broke down. And he went from exuberant to just falling apart. And he was this grown man, the Marlboro man, the 65-year-old weathered, leathered-skinned cowboy in his cowboy hat. And he just started weeping. We realized that he was really broken. We said, Mike, what is it? And we come to find out that the, the mission-sending organization that had sent him out to Kenya, they were cutting at him from every direction. Because Mike's a cowboy and a builder, not an administrator or an accountant. And so every time he would report back about what 
progress has been made. They're asking for receipts and they're asking to balance this book and why is it taking so long? And he says, why is it taking so long? I'm alone by myself and I'm doing what I can. And all they want it to be done is faster and cheaper and more economical. They want me to be an assembly line and I'm just out here doing what God called me to do. And he's just weeping. He was being managed like a nun manages second graders. One big long ruler. All stick and no carrot. What happened was the people who sent him were counting dollars and cents. They'd begun to see him as a worker and forgotten that God had done a work through him to get him there. They were beginning to see him as a widget in a a scheme to get a thing built instead of a human being created in God's image. And as they got further away from him in that reality, the relationship deteriorated to where Mike felt alone, utterly alone on planet Earth. They treated him like an aggravating employee, not a child of God. As we drove away, Mike was wiping his tears in the rearview mirror, fixing his cowboy hat and getting back to work. I said, Pastor Willie, what do you do with that? He said, you never forget. I said, what does that mean? And he said, God cares more about the worker than the work. And in that moment, I was just floored. I'd never heard it. Never considered the concept. God cares more about the worker than the work. I'm thoroughly American, raised for efficiency, raised for results. And what Pastor Willie was saying was that God cares more about the heart of the person working than any of the work happening. That he's sovereign. He doesn't need us to build the orphanage. He wants to love us and display his love through us. He wants us to know how much he loves us. He wants to feel our grace, his grace on a daily basis. God cares more about the worker than the work. I don't know where you are today, or maybe that's the only thing you're supposed to hear today. Maybe you came in and you're feeling inadequate. Maybe you're dealing with shame or guilt or you're carrying something with you and you're going, man, I'm just not getting it right. I just can't check that box. I just can't kick the habit. I just can't do the thing I'm supposed to do. You need to hear that God cares more about the worker than the work. God cares more about you than he cares about what you do. God calls you home as his child and says, you are mine Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus climbed on the cross willingly to give up everything he was so that you might be made whole. And if in this moment you're feeling like less than, Jesus is pointing at you going, you're more than through me. And maybe that's what you need to hear. We all need to hear that God cares more about the worker than the work. That God cares more about the server than the service they give you. God cares more about the preacher than he does about how he preaches. He cares more about the person than what the person can accomplish. He cares more about the heart than about their efficiency. So as we deal with the world around us, as we go and interact with people, God cares more about your neighbor than their neighborliness. Our job is to see each human being as someone created in the holy image of God. 
and to address them at a heart level, to hear them at a heart level. And it is not up to us to save anyone. We're responsible to people, but not for them. God will do the work. The Holy Spirit will draw them in. But our job is to see them for who they really are and who God calls them. Scripture says, in the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He said, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Yea, Father, for such was thy gracious will. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You say, why don't people know this? That's why. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see what you are. I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, and they don't see it, they, to hear what you hear, and they don't hear it. Jesus is attempting to get a message through, and because of the noise, because of the power brokers at hand, we miss it. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the ears who hear it. Blessed are we by our proximity to the Savior who called us home. We have a wild privilege. We have eyes that see reality. We have ears that are tuned to hear the song of the Savior. And when we lose focus, when we lose focus, we miss out on the flourishing He has designed us for. Jesus enters into a land of hostility, and His message is this. Jesus looks at His followers, at His closest friends, and by extension at you and I, and Jesus says, return your eyes to me. Remember that you're my children, that I moved heaven and earth to rescue you. And let that inspire you to participate in kingdom living, even when it makes you look foolish in the eyes of the world around you. Even when those who can't hear the song you hear, even when those who can't see the reality you could see, even when they look at you and go, what's wrong with them? Then you know you're doing it right. Jesus says, chase the hearts of others like I chased yours. Don't write anyone off because none are beyond redemption. No one is beyond redemption. Jesus says he is making all things new and beautiful, that he will take ashes and make beauty. And he says, blessed are you who can see that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for our community today, for this local body of believers, for this flavor of your church, God, that we would be people who hear you. Lord, remind us not only who you are, but who you call us to be and, and how you see us. Father, remind us that you call us children, that you have made us, you have fearfully and wonderfully made us. So, Lord, as we walk through this world, as we walk through our own hostile land, I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see others with that same insight, that we would see hearts yearning for truth and justice. We would see others hurting, knowing that you are the answer. You are the hope. So, Lord, we lift up each other in this space. Those watching online, we lift up our community God, I ask you to give us the courage to go forward with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.